if you know your neighbor as well, then you've seen their color, you've learned a piece of their experience, a piece of their heritage, a piece of you know their culture that may be slightly different than yours, and that allows you to see them in a more human way. And that's different, because it's when you don't see color at all, when you quote unquote are colorblind entirely, that means you are minimizing a portion of who that person is. Because as I always say, if you don't see my color, then you don't see a part of me. And that will in turn allow you to not see me as a human being. Welcome to the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whitehouse. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Elijah Manning. As Elijah became involved with social justice movements over the past few years, he realized he wanted to do more than just march in the streets. He saw that one of the areas of the greatest potential to make a difference is education. So he is founding his company, Inclusive Education LLC, to make that change. People of color and women are completely entwined in our history, our literature, our science, our mathematics. So their contributions should be entwined in our curriculum. Let's learn more from Elijah Manning. So I'm here today with Elijah Manning of Inclusive Education LLC. Thanks for being on the show, Elijah. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Michael. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you uh, having me on this platform. Yeah, so I'm definitely excited to have you here. So, so tell us a little bit about yourself, and uh, then we'll get on to some of the specifics. Certainly. So I uh, am a longtime resident of Connecticut. I currently live in Norwalk, Connecticut, and I originally grew up in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. Um, and in Old Saybrook, not a very diverse community, one of the only uh, black families. I mixed myself, but um, looked upon as more black than white. Uh, but uh, so growing up in that community, you know, uh, it was an interesting shock as I started to move and grow beyond that community. And, you know, I went to school in New York City. So that became wildly different for me, which in a great way. Uh, helped me learn and grow and and find new new facets facets of myself that I hadn't yet discovered. Um, I originally started as an actor. Um, I still do that work, but currently, right now, I have transitioned into uh, becoming more of an activist because I feel that that is where my life has taken me at this specific moment, if you will. All right. Well, yeah, so, and that, that's that's part of why we're talking. So I really wanted to to. Honestly, frankly, try to get more voices from from the the current movement and and from the cutting edge of kind of the, a lot of the very positive changes that we're hearing about uh, here in America. And it's, it seems like like your your business inclusive education is sort of part of that movement. Is that correct? That's the goal that I'm working towards. Um, you know, originally when I first even thought about uh, joining a protest, I kept telling myself, "Well, what am I going to do?" So. Way back when the first Black Lives Matter movement started in you know 2014, I, I wanted to get involved, but I was like, well, what am I going to do? Just protest? And then what? Um, and it became always a start stop for me. So this time I didn't stop. I decided I had I had seen enough. I could no longer just say, well, somebody else is going to work towards something. So I made it a point to go out and be involved. It started with me writing a speech, which I shared on on Facebook, and I had no intention of doing anything further with it, but I uh, went to my first protest in Norwalk, and something just told me to say my speech, and I did, and it was well-received, and it gave me the 
energy and the focus to start narrowing in on what I felt would be my specific lane. So that turned into being uh, more of the inclusive education. There are so many people who are doing such great work on the policing aspect of things. Um, you know, from DeRay De McKesson, he's one of the original members that was marching in um, with Michael Brown in Missouri. And, uh, you know, they they were doing such great work, him and Samson Agwe with Campaign Zero, that to me, I was like, well, I'm way behind on that curve. <laughs> How can I do anything that will make any impact? So I immediately was like, the Frederick Douglass quote about being able to build children instead of trying to teach broken men. I was like, well, what if we take that same concept and really dive into what that means, which is teaching it in schools. So that is where I decided I'm going to shift my focus to bringing this into school systems. So I immediately uh, emailed my board of education and we're in the process of getting a new superintendent as well. So uh, they were open uh, and very interested in, in learning more and wanting to work with me as well. Very good. And so, so talk a little bit about how you would um, kind of d d make the education, the, the curriculum more inclusive. Absolutely. So my goal is to, uh, I have set up a whole written presentation so far, and I'm currently working on the actual slide version of the presentation to go hand in hand because, you know, it's one thing to have to sit down and read 15 to 20 pages of a presentation. But when you get to see it as well, it, it, it tends to keep people's interest. So mm -hmm. I, I'm doing that as well. Um, so the idea is there are so many facets of our history and um, not just history in terms of it being, you know, the historical facts, but like history of inventions, history of uh, mathematics, uh, politicians. Uh, there are so many underserved uh, portions of that, as in minorities, and not just um, black people as well. There's um, natives, there's women, even, uh, you know, Latinos, all the above. But they all have such a rich part of what this country has been able to accomplish. And we, more often than not, are relegated to pushing them to the side and learning about them in rather small pieces here and there. So I I could no longer abide by that tradition and decided that what if we set up a way to have that be what we teach every day? Um, whether in you're, you're in mathematics class and now you're also learning about who, in, who came up with what theory that works in mathematics? And it doesn't always have to be a, a, a white person that, that came up with these theories because it's not always. And, um, you know, whatever that be in science, all these inventions that were created by black people as well, we, we don't learn about. Uh, so the idea is not just to relegate it to history uh, in terms of history, if you will, to reuse that word, but to make it a more open approach to all of our learning in schools. Yes, yeah, it's been a great, great concept. I'm, I'm kind of a history, I guess a fan. That's what uh, Dan Carlin calls himself. It's not, <laughs> I'm not a historian, but I'm a great fan of history. And, and I think so much of, of what makes our history so white, our education so white, if you will, 
um, isn't so much, you know, that, that we're, whenever you do history, you choose what you're going to look at because there's so much of it. Um, you know, we can't keep track of everything going on right now, let alone everything going on over a 400 year span. But, you know, if you start the story of Native Americans in 1650, then, yeah, they look like a pretty beat up people. If you started in 1250 uh, or even in the 15th century where the, the Spanish arrived and I believe it was the, the Mayan Empire uh, that commanded a, a I can't remember if the Maya or the Inca, uh, commanded a 3,000 mile long empire that the Spanish, if they somehow took that size over, didn't have the bureaucracy to be able to control it and had to use the native bureaucracy to manage the territory. And you never think about, you always think of the Europeans as so orderly and organized and they've got accounting and reading and, and all this. And, and they came from the Roman empire and all these savages around the world are just living in huts and you, you, they don't give the proper due to all these other non-European uh, peoples. Um, right. And so, and, and just even telling those stories, I think would be, would be very powerful. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, so in in there, I have um, showed these pages um, that you can go on and find books about the history of these as well. And these books are not just for adults to read. These are books that you can use in schools, both written by Native Americans, specifically in this case, and mm-hmm. uh, about Native American history. And like you're saying, you know, the history is so rich and has been around for for many more years than than the country itself has been around. Um, you know, that would be something that you could easily transition into bringing into school where they could sit down with a, a children's book if you're in, you know, kindergarten through third grade and see easily that, oh, wow, here's a wonderful picture book or whatever the case may be that, that I can read my entire class and we can actually discuss this and show that there was so much more than we have uh, looked at prior to. And instead of just saying, we realized they were here because Christopher Columbus got here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and as, as I'm thinking about it, like my, my, um, my parents were very progressive. My mother was a Vietnam war protester. And, and I remember asking her once, uh, you know, how was it the Europeans could defeat the native Americans? Um, you know, was it just that they, they had the advantage of them, was it disease, whatever. And and I've since learned interesting facts like uh, a Native American warrior could fire a bow three times as fast at the same range as a musket. Hmm. Um, so if you had a thousand Native soldiers and a thousand European soldiers facing off, the Europeans were at a disadvantage. Um, but, th- but that never gets into the narrative. Um, you know, the, the fact that disease ravaged the, the countryside, which is really why the Europeans... Um, were able to dominate, you know, those things that the, that the, in terms of, of uh, military technology, social sophistication, everything, um, it just happened that one side happened to get really unlucky at the, at the moment of encounter. Um, and I imagine the same way I'm thinking too, with the education of about, about black history tends to start at the Atlantic slaves trade as if, mm-hmm. as if uh, black people in Africa just kind of waiting for the Europeans to show up and put them in chains and carry them off. That there wasn't anything that happened before the 15th century, 14th century, and they started when the the slave ships started showing up, and that's uh, obviously not not the way it was. So I think it'd be great to you know educate more on what was going on in the rest of the world. Yes, you are 100 correct. I I couldn't agree more fully. And um, you know that is something that even if you 
even if you're not reaching back to that, even if you want to teach it from just the American perspective, but here in America, we still don't teach that full perspective. So, you know, again, looking at it on a global scale, you know, the history of the world is much richer and, and fuller than we we talk about grandly. But even if you're looking at just the American history version of it, it is still much more full than we speak on all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when we when we have Black History Month, we so often just decide that Black History Month is pretty much going to be a regurgitation of the same topics. We're going to learn about slavery and, and Harriet Tubman in the uh, Underground Railroad. Uh, we're going to li- learn a little bit uh, about the, the civil rights era. I say that because we focus in mostly on the the ending of it where, you know, Martin Luther King and then he was killed and Rosa Parks. And but, she- but it's okay because we won, right? Like <laughs> Exactly. Because- by 1970, it was pretty much done. Yeah. Civil rights. That's that's Mission what accomplished. it all worked <laughs> perfectly. <laughs> yeah. And when we look at Rosa Parks and say, oh, she sat on a bus, but we don't talk about the whole bus boycott that lasted for months on mm-hmm. end. And, and it just becomes we we desensitize it and sanitize it and make it clean for everybody to learn because, well, you know, we don't want to ruffle any other feathers and, and talk mm-hmm. about what what else could have ha- been happening. You know, we don't really talk about Malcolm X enough. Because he wasn't the peaceful protester that Martin Luther King was. So we don't want to talk about him or we don't really talk about the Black Panthers. Instead, we talk about how the Black Panthers went to the state capitol in California with their with their weapons. And because of that, we had to ban, you know, rifles, assault rifles on the uh, on, in the capitol. And we had to do all this. With, and the NRA spoke out against them carrying weapons. When has the NRA ever spoken out against carrying weapons outside of that? Mm hmm. Yeah, definitely much more complex and complex and nuanced kind of thing. And yeah, well, you're right. When you when you write when you whitewash it, I think also when you whitewash it, it it makes it seem so much simpler. Like Rosa Parks sat on a bus, and and then uh, Martin Luther King and a few people walked across some bridges, and then it was pretty much done. Yeah, and and one of my biggest pet peeves currently in in um, the environment and the climate, if you will, that we we're dealing with is all you know. When, when we see the protesters and we see sometimes they're breaking down into riots and, you know, oftentimes it is used by more white people than not that, you know, Martin Luther King was a peaceful protester. And, and you know, he talks about love, you know, or, or darkness can't drive out darkness. Only love can drive out darkness and, um, you know, nonviolent, nonviolent. But he also said, you know, uh, a riot is the language of the unheard. And he talks very much about how if you're not listening, that's where it becomes this boiling point where things are going to bubble over. And we also uh, don't quite show the images of after he talks about nonviolent, they march and protest. And then next thing you know, the hoses are turned on them and the dogs are turned mm-hmm. on them and they are brutally beaten in the streets. But we we stop because we just want to remember that he said nonviolent, but yeah. then the, the aftermath of what they did to him, and then he was murdered for it. Yeah, and, and also even just basic nuances, um, like yeah, Rosa Parks, she sat on the bus in 1955, right? And uh, and King was he was shot in 1968. Is that right? Correct. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's 13 years. Right. That's 
that that is the distance from now to before the Great Recession. Right. Um, like that's a pretty long time, and of course it wasn't done in 1968 either. But but that's a pretty long time that that was that movement was going on in that form. Right. And you know, 1955 is also, I believe, the year that Emmett Till was murdered, and you know that is a, another piece that helped to spark the civil rights movement that we often don't hear about. And, you know, if you don't know the story of Emmett Till, I'm, I'm sure you probably do. You probably heard this one, but, uh, you know, he was a 15 year old young man down in Alabama who was uh, wrongfully accused for hitting on a woman. She accused him, but, you know, turns out many years later, he, he didn't do so, but he was uh, dragged through the streets, brutally beaten and then killed a 15 year old boy, uh, a black boy who was a, a, such a young man with mm-hmm. with so much ahead of him and he was visiting relatives on top of it in uh alabama he was you know lived in chicago and to be away from his close family when this is happening to him you can only imagine the the, the fear but that's another story we don't really talk about enough and uh how that is such a you know powder keg moment mm-hmm. yep and, and what seems to be that's that's happening in in the current moment um is is that there's a lot more attention on it. And, and while you're always going to have, have people on, on social media who are saying things at the extreme ends, it, it seems like the general white reaction I'm seeing is a lot of people, some people are coming around for the first time, almost saying like, sorry, it took me so long, but I'm here now. Mm-hmm. And others who are, um, you know, maybe have been uh, alert for a while. But, but you know, when things are happening, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of white people commenting like, wow, this is terrible. This needs to stop. Like, we need to do something. Um, and it's not just from the black community; it's kind of from the community writ large. Yes, there is there is a growing perspective now that um, has completely changed what is happening. And um, interesting, I don't know the the true reasoning behind it, but I'm you know part of me always wonders: is it you know the the lack of sports in our community mm-hmm. right now? Is it the fact that you know? with uh, the coronavirus COVID-19 situation happening, it left all of us at home with not, not much else going on for some of us, you know, uh, less than others. Um, so it, it, it made it a super heightened situation that we all sat down and watched together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting because if it had been a quote unquote normal uh, time, would it have sparked the outrage that it ha- has currently sparked? And yeah. I don't know the answer because, you know, we live in the current. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you never know for sure. I, I definitely do think COVID has something to do with it because, um, you know, one of the, the factors, in fact, you, you notice this, they've done some studies on company countries that have better social safety nets tend to have more protests hmm. because, because you know, it's tough to get time off work to go to a protest. Right. Uh, and like out out here in Mystic, there's is and I'm not sure if it's, they're still doing it, but for a while, every day at noon, they they would go out there for an hour. It's like 300 people in Mystic mm. um, protesting. And of course, you know if you're if you're working nine to five, you're not taking an hour out of every day to go down to a protest. But I, I think it's also the fact that we're not distracted. We're not watching sports. We're not watching reality TV. And I think we're almost kind of we're almost kind of prepared to prepared for some kind of denouement. Like we're sitting here for three months in quarantine okay what's next what's happening i know there's going to be another episode of 2020 the great adventure 
and then this happens. I think a lot of people are kind of like, oh, that's it. That's my moment. Okay, time to – that's what I'm doing next. Yeah, um, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the idea of like this is a moment to to – something's got to get better from here. Oh, okay, there. That's where it's going to get better. I see. Now, now how's, that's how I can get involved. Um, and so, so you were telling me before we went on the air that um, you've been involved in seven or eight protests so far? Uh, yes, I have. Um, so the first one I had gone to was, was here in Norwalk. And, um, you know, it was a great experience. It it helped me to learn pretty much instantly um, what a protest should be about, mm-hmm. you know, as too often we see the sensationalized version on TV or we see the just the riot version. But being involved in one is is an experience on its own because, uh, you, you know, what you can learn from the people who speak and the reason behind uh, the the protest itself. So mm-hmm. then I continued to to go to other ones. And um, my cousins helped to organize one in Old Saybrook. And they asked me if I was coming and if I would speak. And I certainly did. I I this was the second time I was going to do, actually it was the third time I was going to do my speech. Uh, I went to West Haven as well and did my speech in front of, you know, about 2000 people. Um, in the one in old Saybrook, you know, it was about 300 or so. Uh, and then I've gone to Haddam, uh, New Canaan, Greenwich as well. And, uh, you know, each one is a little bit different, but equally important. And, um, as I was mentioning to you, uh, before we started, uh, some of these ones I'm going to, uh, Old Saybrook, uh, Haddam, uh, Greenwich, New Canaan, those are predominantly white towns. Mm-hmm. So I felt it is increased importance to go to a community with less diversity and to spread my message. My um, speech is, is called When Will You See Us? And it dives into the history of uh, systemic racism and it ask the question, when will you see us? Because oftentimes, you know, you uh, see a protester and then you see what the news media does to it, sensationalize it. They're rioters. They're just shooting their own communities, black on black crime. So it devolves into this whole narrative of, oh, this is just them being ridiculous. But every time those types of things are said towards us, it diminishes the work we are attempting to do and who we are as people. And mm-hmm. until, until you actually listen to our stories and see us for who we are, there's never going to be a time that you will see us as equal. And so that is why I feel it is important to go to these uh, less diverse communities, because when you're in the, the communities with the more diversity, there's more of a chance for my message to get lost because it's the same message everybody is is saying and you know we're all more towards the same page if you will and at least you know in the diversity standpoint and then when you're in the smaller towns the outsider perspective tends to ring in a different way right yeah yeah and we said we said greenwich and i say like of course there's there's marches almost everywhere in america right now but just try you know imagining Greenwich, which I think is 106 percent white, um, <laughs> if not even higher. Yeah, yeah. The the the, uh, the 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 albedo of that town it just radiates into space. You can see it. Um, but uh, but but I imagine there are probably a lot of people from the community who um, who do, and, and even in you know Mystic Mystic is I think 94 percent mm-hmm. white of the population. But 300 people were showing up in the middle of the day 
to have a daily rally. Uh, and, and you look at the pictures, it's mostly white folks who hmm. were there. And I think there's definitely an, an awakening of, um, of some, and, and I think to some degree, we were talking about this before, is this idea of not colorblindness, but of recognizing we're all Americans. Right. Um, or we're all people, depending on your particular focus. But this idea of, of, you know, I'm not upset about it because it's racism. I'm upset about it because it's, those are my countrymen that something's bad happening to. And it doesn't matter if they're black, white, blue, or green. Something's bad happening to them, and it's happening because they're black, and so it's a racist issue, and I want to stop it. Um, but I'm upset anytime something bad happens to my countrymen, and I see people of different races as my countrymen. Right. And that is an important uh, piece of information. And, you know, pardon me, the distinction of, you know, seeing color versus not seeing color is one that uh, can get easily lost because what you're saying is absolutely 100% correct. You're seeing your neighbor for, for who your neighbor is as a human being. But if you know your neighbor as well, then you've seen their color. You've learned a piece of their experience, a piece of their heritage, a piece of, you know, their culture that may be slightly different than yours. And that allows you to see them in a more human way. And that's Mm -hmm. different because it's when you don't see color at all, when you quote unquote are colorblind entirely, that means you are minimizing a portion of who that person is. Because as I always say, if you don't see my color, then you don't see a part of me. And that will in turn allow you to not see me as a human being or at least on the same level of human being as you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That. And as I say, you kind of template everything on yourself. Right. So if you're not seeing someone's color and thus their heritage and their background, you're simply applying your template over them and you're overwriting the parts of their life. You don't feel like learning about with, eh, they're probably more or less like me. Right. Right. But, get to know them and and you'll find out that yeah they they just might be more or less like you but uh as you see them your job as as a human being is to try to connect with them on a human level and part mm-hmm. of that human level is you know seeing who they are the, the differences in things they may listen to or read or talk about or you know how they may interact with you maybe even different than how they interact with their friend and that's okay because you know we each have different interactions but don't diminish what any of them do um just understand that you know we all have our own intricacies and in our own uh versions of who we are based off of where we are yeah and i'm I'm thinking that 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 applies along other other lines as well whether whether demographic or or other you know if you have a a friend who's kind of shy and introverted and you know they have something to say but takes a while to get it out you'll think about that and you'll be like let me pause and and you know does john have anything to say um, or if you have a friend who's, um, you know, a friend who's a woman, she's going to have different concerns and interests than a man might, especially around, you know, safety and then everything else. Um, and so, you know, again, acknowledging like as a woman, you you may be concerned about these things that a man is not. Um, and you know, in, in all kinds of different ways and race is just one of those aspects that would inform, um, how you can, how you can know someone and also how you can help their, help them be there for them. Yeah, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so, um, all right. So we're we're coming towards the end of our time. This has been a, a great interview. I'm so glad I had you on. Um, do you, is there any final uh, comments you'd like to share? Uh, absolutely. I I just want to keep reminding everybody that although 
things seem to be changing. Don't let anybody change the narrative. Uh, don't let up. Continue to keep pushing because as things may start to get normalized and we may start to go back to uh, whatever semblance of our life prior to was, there is still work that needs to be done and uh, we must continue pushing forward. As I always like to say, the work continues. So don't Thank let you. up, just keep moving forward. And and do you have a website for uh, for inclusive education yet or any um, but, resources you'd like to share? Uh, not yet, uh, as I, I'm holding all those pretty close to the, to the vest right now because okay. as I'm moving forward with the schools, I don't want to um, release any other information outward yet. But as I sure. continue to, to build and grow, I'm definitely going to have uh, you know, pages where you can go and, and find the resources that I continually talk about. Okay, we'll just have to have you on the show again sometime. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the show. I appreciate you having me. It has been a pleasure. One of the difficulties of studying history is that you need to interact with the general public, who does not. There has been a lot of discussion about history, how it is taught, how it is remembered, how it is shaped recently. But what most people don't realize is that history is always about choosing what aspects to focus on and which not to. History is the study of everything that ever happened ever. That's a lot to cover. So we simplify and we filter. When you study history, however, you discover things that might have been glossed over in school. You might have gotten the idea that the history of Europe goes a little something like this. The wise Greeks gave way to the mighty and orderly Romans. Rome fell for some reason, but after a brief period, strong kings, supported by mighty knights, built great kingdoms, and these kingdoms grew in knowledge and power and took to ships to dominate the weaker nations of the world before turning into tyrannical colonizers. That's the basic narrative of European history as it is taught, and it's highly misleading. It shows Europe as the protagonist in the world narrative, as if Europe was always destined to rule. In the year 1000, Europe was a poor, dirty, disorderly backwater. Even into the 13th and 14th centuries, Europe was peripheral to world trade because, other than their own people as slaves, they had little of value to sell. In fact, around that time, they didn't even know how to bathe properly because they thought that bathing caused disease. This is also the same people who killed cats because they thought they caused the plague, although the plague was in fact caused by fleas on rats, the same things that cats used to kill. These were not the bright, shining beacons of the world at that time. The centers of learning, technology, science, and luxury were most certainly not in Europe. Europe has only been a player on the world stage for the last 400 years or so. If you told a wise person living in China or Baghdad in the year 1200 that in 700 years Europe would dominate the globe, they would have laughed you out of the room. Learning history is vital to understanding the truth of our world, and this is why Elijah's work is so interesting and exciting to me. I look forward to following his progress and seeing how he can deploy the power of education to change the world. If you have questions or comments or feedback on the show, email michael at guywhoknowsaguy.com. The Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast is produced and hosted by Michael Whitehouse. Our theme song is composed by Patrick Howard of Four Unicorns Design. Our music and sound effects are from Benjamin Harvey Design by way of freesound.org and bensound.org. Special thanks to Pat Helmers of Habanero Media for all the great advice he gave me on relaunching the show. Find me on the web at www.guywhoknowsaguy.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. You can also follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash theguywhoknowsaguy. Please share links to this show with friends you think would enjoy it. 
This is Michael Whitehouse, the guy who knows the guy, reminding you that it's not what you know, it's who you know, and how much you're willing to help them. JV Connect is coming up quick, December 12th and 13th. If you are looking for a networking event where you can meet people who aren't looking to just pitch you or take, but actually want to collaborate, build strategic partnerships, joint ventures, maybe even find some mentors, some coaches, people to support you, accountability partners, who knows? If you're looking for good people in an environment that's not stressful, but is set up to give you a lot of great connections in an efficient amount of time, check out JV Connect. JV-Connect.com. That's JV-Connect.com. December 12th and 13th, 2023. We'll see you there.